Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and welcome once again to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program celebrating over 11 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening, I'm Amrita Myers, and in today's broadcast, you'll also hear some perspectives on uh, President Trump's inauguration and the ensuing women's protest marches that were nationally held, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, it's always a pleasure to speak to one of America's most outstanding thought leaders. From his celebrated conversations with world figures to his work to inspire the next generation of leaders, to have a smiley broadcaster, author, publisher, advocate, and philanthropist has emerged as an outstanding voice for change. Smiley is currently the host of the late-night television talk show Tavis Smiley on PBS, as well as the Tavis Smiley Show from Public Radio International, or PRI. In the New York Times bestseller, The Rich and the Rest of Us, A Poverty Manifesto, Smiley and his co-author, Dr. Cornell West, challenge all Americans to re-examine their assumptions about poverty in America, what it really is, and how to eradicate it. Time Magazine has cited Smiley as one of the world's 100 most influential people. And Mr. Smiley has been honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Bringing on co-anchor Cornelius Wright recently sat down for a one-on-one conversation with Tavis Smiley. What follows is a pre-recorded conversation addressing Tavis's opinions on, one, how a Trump presidency will affect the perceived advances made in the African-American community under the Obama administration, Two, the policies President Trump would have hopefully detailed during his inaugural address. And three, whether or not the Democratic Party can make a formidable resurgence, and much more. Here now is that pre-recorded interview with Cornelius Wright and Tavis Smiley. Once again for doing this. And the first thing i kind of like to talk to you about is, before we get into Donald Trump and uh, what the country has to look forward to, is President Obama, uh, his legacy— what do you think historians and how do you feel his legacy will be shown in the future? Great question. First of all, Happy New Year, Brother Cornelius. Good to be back on with you again, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tavis. Uh, it's a great question because I literally just had a piece published uh, at, uh, in Time Magazine. If you go to time.com, uh, time.com, you can read in detail. Uh, the piece I've written about the president's legacy, at least as I see it. Um, so Time Magazine asked me to write a farewell letter to the president, which I thought about and agreed to do, and it's it's uh, available on, on Time Magazine's website at time.com. And what I tried to advance in that piece was, to your question, your brilliant question, the fact that I believe that the historians are going to be much kinder to him down the road that he's being treated in this moment. Um, my granddad used to always say, Tavis, it's hard to see the parade when you're on the float. So when you're on the float, it's hard to see the expanse of the parade and all that's happening around you. And I think that uh, for the president even, it's hard to see and understand um, what this moment really looks like until you get some distance from it. So I look forward to, you know, at some point reading his memoirs and seeing his reflections and, for that matter, that of the First Lady. So I think to answer your question is the historians are going to be much kinder to him down the road, and yet there are going to be some very, very difficult questions um, he's going to have to address. And one of them is, one of them is going to be how is it that in the era of the first black president, the bottom fell out for black America. 
Um, black people, as I say in this piece, have lost ground in every economic category over the last 10 years, which includes, of course, eight years of his presidency. So for whatever good news there was to come out of the Obama years for black people economically, um, there's not a there's not a good story here to be told. And so the historians are going to have a hard time trying to juxtapose again the era of the first black president with black people catching hell. Um, that's a tough question that the president is going to be – it's a box he's going to be put in that's going to be hard to get out of. But there's so many other fronts on which he did, you know, some, I think some monumental and some heavy lifting. Uh, what do you think the reason is that uh, black America has lost ground economically during President Obama's uh, presidency? A couple answers. One, black people have always caught the most hell. There's no doubt about no doubt about that. We have always been the, as the old adage goes, the last hide and the first fired. So these numbers have never reached parity uh, with white America. I always laugh and people, you know, try to tell black people how much better off they are now than they were, you know, during slavery. And I was like, you know, that's the wrong question. The question is not whether we're doing better now than we were a couple hundred years ago. The question is how are black folk doing relative to white folk today? That's the right question, and by that metric, uh, by that standard, we still have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we are still lagging behind, far behind in every major economic category. We've lost ground again over the last 10 years. To answer your question, part of that has to do with uh, beyond the historical reality that I think on the part of black people there was too much deference to the president, and sometimes deference can become detrimental. And so we saw all the hell that he was catching from the, from, the, from, the, from the right wing, and we knew the tough spot he was in. We were just glad to have a brother in the White House, and we didn't want to push too hard. Uh, but it, it turns out to be an interesting story because the, the sad irony here is that we are his most loyal constituency, black America, that is, his most loyal constituency, and, let black, and yet black folk gained the most ground over these last eight years. So the Bible that I read says you have not because you ask not. And I think that's what I'm saying, that black people didn't make any demands. And if you don't make any demands, then you don't get anything. A closed mouth does not get fed. Absolutely. And what are your thoughts on how a Trump presidency will impact the perceived advances made in the African-American community? Let me just say this. Um, Donald Trump is at the top of my prayer list these days. He's got that brother. He needs a whole lot of prayer and a lot of help. And I don't, I don't know, even with our you know, fierce advocacy, uh, how much headway we're going to make over these next four years, particularly given that as we sit for this conversation, Brother Cornelius, there are all kinds of Trump nominees um, that are having hearings on Capitol Hill. And some of these people are just um, just scary. I think of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General, and it scares me. And some of the other people on his team, they just scare me because they, I think, want to take America in a direction that is not good for the future of this democracy, especially if we want this democracy to be one uh, where there's no gap, no gulf between the haves and the have-nots, if there's no gulf between what we uh, profess as our ideals and what we do in reality. I just think there, there's, there's, there's some, serious, some serious concerns, of course, that we, uh, that we legitimately have about the next four years. And so the impact on black America, if you ask me to put it in a word, I think it may be negligible. That is to say, if we've already lost ground over the last 10 years, you know, it's that whole adage of, you know, how much worse can it get? And yet, that is no reason for us not to fight. That is no reason for us not um, to to be true to those things that we believe in and to advocate for those persons that we know are being disenfranchised politically, economically, socially, and culturally. It does not mean that in any way we abrogate our responsibility to the least of these. But I don't know that the impact on black folk over the next four years specifically is going to be in any way appreciable. 
One of the things that I worry about is our Supreme Court justice nominees. Yes. Uh, We have one that's up in the air that we really got railroaded on. And probably in the next four to eight years, there'll be a couple of more that are that are going to be up for nomination. Yes. How do you think this presidency and those nominees will can possibly shape our future? That is the scariest of all scenarios. Just to hear you, you know, ask the question, I I shudder, because that was always one of my great concerns during the campaign season, that if this man gets elected, I can tell you right now, uh, as we all know, what the Supreme Court's going to look like. And I wonder to what extent Ruth Bader Ginsburg, unless she lives to be 115, uh, I don't know that she, Cornelius, won't regret that she didn't retire during the Obama era to give him time to put somebody else in her seat. She steadfastly fought retirement. And she's entitled to that. These are lifetime appointments. And yet, I'm not so sure that we shouldn't rethink this notion of lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court precisely because of this of this issue. Um, and so it is a, it's 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 a, it's going to be a daunting task to fight and to uh, to win um, in terms of getting the kinds of person on the court that we think are fair and balanced. Pardon the pun. Uh, not the least of which is because you got a Republican now in the White House, a Republican controlling the House, Republicans controlling the Senate. And in just a little bit, the Supreme Court is going to swing all the way to the right, and it's going to be it's going to be challenged. I mean, I wish I could be more optimistic. All I can tell you is that I believe that people wake up eventually, either because they see the light or because they feel the heat. If we ain't seen the light just yet, we certainly are about to feel the heat, and sometimes that's what it takes for a moment to build momentum that turns into a movement. And I'm just hoping and praying that that, that happens sooner rather than later. You know, we had this movement eight years ago. Uh, the country was just totally enthralled with, with uh, Senator Obama at the time. Yes. And it seems that through this, these eight years, some of that magic dwindled. I mean, the, the turnout for this election was low. It was pathetic, actually, with so much at stake. How do we get a resurgence of the Democratic Party? leadership, like anything else, um, you've got to have the right people who have the right vision. Um, uh, where there is no vision, the people perish, and you have to have a vision. And the Democratic Party, in many ways, has itself to blame for the, for the pardon the pun, the trumping um, that it took in this, uh, this uh, the trumping, the thumping that it took in this last election, because um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, to my mind, was never the right person to lead the party. And if we had time, I could go into that. It's not even worth it. It's inside baseball. But they had the wrong leader of the party. And then when all those, when their emails got hacked, and you started to see how they were maltreating Bernie Sanders and how the process wasn't really fair and open and just as it should have been. Um, and you, 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 you see what was in those emails. You, you realize that the party had some issues. And so there is a fight right now, as you know, for who is going to be the leader of this party. Um, the Clinton era, with its big hand on the Democratic Party, is over. Um, Barack Obama seems to not have a real interest in, you know, continuing to press his imprimatur on the Democratic Party. So it's, 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 there's, a, there's a window here. There's an open window. There's an open season for Democrats to elect the kind of leader that party needs. It has a bigger vision, a grander vision, a more inclusive vision. Bernie Sanders, at his advanced age, was the only person running for president on the Democratic ticket or Republican ticket for that matter, that really energized the youthful base. So if you you know, if you try to kill off the guy that's energizing the young base and women, fifty three percent of them still, after all that nonsense, voted for the other guy, Donald Trump, I mean, 
the nominee had some issues, but also the party had some issues. The, the base of that party has been gutted. Uh, the union movement has been just beaten down. Um, so when you start looking at the core constituency, core constituency that is a Democratic Party, there's some work to be done. And that's why I come back to this. You know, it, it all depends or in large part depends on who they elect as the next leader of this party and what kind of leader, kind of vision, rather, that leader brings. As you know, there's a brother, Keith Ellison, out of Minnesota. There's a black man running to be the head of the Democratic Party. We haven't had that since Ron Brown became the first black to head the DNC. I mean, Donna Brazil, of course, was the interim. Um, and Barack Obama was, I guess, the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the leader of the party, given that he was the president. But um, I think it makes a difference who the leader is, and I'm, I'm watching that race with keen interest. You know, Donald Trump, during, during his uh, campaign, spewed a lot of rhetoric, just insane rhetoric. What policies do you hope that President Trump will finally detail during his inaugural speech? All of them, because he ain't detailed none of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for detail on anything. It's, it's. I mean, it, it is. I think the historians are going to have, a, you know, just have a field day just looking back on this campaign. Obviously, obviously, there'll be books and books and books and books written for years about this campaign and how he won and Hillary Clinton lost, and there's going to be a lot of, lot of, lot of. Uh, a lot of trees that are going to get cut down in the process of uh, trying to explain this to the to the American people and, for that matter, to, to the world. But one of the things is just I still am gobsmacked by and about is how a guy could be elected president who didn't detail anything all the way through. He didn't detail anything during the pri- during the primaries. He didn't detail anything during the general election. He was smart enough to use social media and all the stuff we already know. I won't rehash all of that. But when you look back on it, it's, it's, it, it, it is mind-boggling that you have someone who ran for the White House. Forget all, you know, never mind all the other shenanigans. I mean, I got tired of my Democratic friends even talking about the optics are wrong, the optics. I mean, clearly, I said to my friends a, a thousand times, if voters don't care about the antics, about Donald Trump's antics, they sure don't care about the optics. Get outside the Washington Beltway think tank. Think tank. The optics don't matter if the antics don't matter that he's getting away with. And so I didn't. I never got caught up in the optics. Um, but what is interesting to me is uh, again how somebody can go from primary to general election to the White House without ever ever having detailed anything. It just goes to show how so many Americans are just put off by the dysfunction that is Washington. And when a guy like him can succeed without ever detailing anything, it just shows you the trouble that this democracy is in. Indeed. Now, you've talked to so many different people around the country, around the world. And as you talk to different people around the world, what is their impression on what's going on in the United States? They're they're baffled. Um, They're baffled. They're befuddled, um, like many of us who are residents and citizens of this uh, of this great country they're they're stunned it was stunning for a lot of people around the globe particularly to your earlier point Cornelius, which was so brilliant um especially when you consider that eight years ago we did something unthinkable i mean it is interesting eight years ago we did something unthinkable and eight years later we've done something unthinkable um but they're not in the same category they are not comparable to say the least and so people are just shocked that the country could take one big step forward in 2008 and two giant steps backwards in 2016. Um, and so, you know, if we don't understand it and we can't explain it, certainly they don't get it. And so they're 
again, just um, it's a mystery to them in, in, in so many ways. And they're wondering what all the bluster and all the make America great and this American exceptionalism and all the, the patriotism that's now become nationalism. What does all that mean for our standing on the world stage? And how do people regard America? I remember, this is the only example I can give you, because actually, I remember when George Bush got elected the first time and got elected the second time, talking about George W. Bush, the son. Um, and I would travel around the world. I've not been too, too, I haven't traveled too much since um, November. I was here for the holidays and back home again in Indiana to be with my family, of course. So I haven't, I haven't left the country as yet since the election of November, but I will. And I suspect that I'm going to hear what I heard when Bush was in the office, which was, how did you guys do that? Like, what were you guys thinking? And the only thing that I could say when Bush was in office which I suspect is the same thing I'll be saying now that Trump will be our president, is that there is a difference, as strange as it sounds, and you have to explain it, there is a difference between the American government and the American people. Now, clearly the government is made up of we the people, and we elected these persons, but sometimes a distinction does exist between our government, the American government, and the American people. And this is one of those moments where I'm going to find myself pulling out my speech from all those years ago to explain to people around the globe the distinction between the American government and the American people. And even though the people, at least part of us, a few of us, elected this government, it does not represent all of us in the way it moves and behaves. And so it's just a matter of trying to get people around the globe to understand that. There's been a lot of discussion about Russia's interference with, with our election. Um and I told a couple of people, I said, I find it ironic, and don't get me wrong, I don't condone it in any way, shape, or form, but I look back through history, we've, we've kind of uh, had an influence on several elections in other countries ourselves. How much do you think that Russia actually had an effect on the election, and how do you think this is going to, in the future elections, how do you think that it's going to uh, change things? Three things. One, it's hard to know, and it's hard to know because I don't know that we really have all the facts. Um so much of what really happened has been leaked out and told in pieces. I, I just don't know that, and I'm, I'm in the media every day, I do this for a living every day, and I don't know that I have a good handle with all that I read, and I read a lot of sources. I don't know that I have a good handle on what really happened or what didn't happen. So one, it's just hard to know what the truth really is, number one. Number two, whatever the truth is, Donald Trump doesn't seem to care about it. He has sort of poo-pooed this thing from the very beginning and still does now. And so it's troubling to me, not that the CIA is right, not that the FBI is right. And I've got issues with both of those institutions. Don't get me started on that, uh, on our intelligence community and, and the issues I have with the way they go about doing their business in many instances. And yet, this is our apparatus. And if the president of the United States doesn't trust or doesn't believe in or finds himself at odds with the intelligence community, with the FBI, the CIA, that's, that's a problem. I mean, again, somebody's got to be on the same page about the intel that we're giving and how we ought to interpret it. And so when you have a president-elect who just, you know, on demand, you know, out the blocks, just dismisses the intelligence he's getting, that's a problem. Um, and what we've seen in this election, of course, is that the truth is whatever Donald Trump determines it to be. So never mind the intel that may be telling him one thing. If he makes up his own scenario, his own storyline, his own narrative, and then acts upon that, we got a problem. Um, and thirdly and finally, um, it, is, it is worth reminding uh, the audience, as you intimated a moment ago, that our elections aren't the only ones that, that get messed with. And we aren't the only ones who get spied on. You do recall, you know, a couple of years ago, 
when Barack Obama had egg all over his face when he had to apologize to Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, because we had tapped into her cell phone. You remember that? I do indeed. So my point is that they tap us, we tap them. And I, I get sick and, and tired sometimes of this American holier-than-thou attitude. I'm a proud American. I wouldn't want to live anywhere, anywhere else in the world. But being a true patriot means telling the truth about your own country and not being afraid to put its own dirty laundry out to make it a better nation, make her a better place to live and work. And so, you know, we can talk about Russia all day long, but let's not forget there are plenty of examples of regime change that we have been behind. Um, our foreign policy changes when it's in our best interest. Oftentimes it's not based upon principle. We've, we've, we've supported a whole lot of dictators around the globe. Um, in Chile, in, in Africa, uh, Mobutu Sese Seiko comes to mind, in the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, don't get me started. We've propped up dictators all around the world, and now in this age of technology, we're tapping people and wiretapping and, and spying and on people and all kind of stuff. So my point is that this did happen to us apparently this time around, but it ain't the first time, it ain't the last time, and we do it to other people as well. Indeed. Finances. President or President-elect Trump did not show any of his uh, tax records in the, few, in the past. And he never will. Well, here, here's my question and my problem. Now that he is going to become president— and he has so many business ventures around the world, conflicts of interest. Isn't it imperative that he shows his records so the American people know that he is not in the office for gain? It depends on what American people you're talking about. Clearly, the American people who voted for him voted for him not knowing that tangled web that he had weaved. It didn't matter enough to them. And, uh, you know, you, know, you Google it, you'll see it anywhere and everywhere uh, uh, many, many times where Trump basically has said the American people didn't care. They didn't care. You, the, the media cared about my taxes. You guys wanted to get into my money. But the American people didn't care. They voted me president. And my sense is that Donald Trump is going to hide behind that for as long as he can. That if the American people really cared about my taxes that much, they would not have elected me president. It mattered to the media, but it clearly didn't matter to those who voted for me, and I won. So deal with it. And I think that's where he is now. That's where he has been. And that's where he's going to be. And quite frankly, if I were him and I'd gotten away with it, that's where I'd be too. I'm not going to show you my money if I don't have to show you my money. I mean, I know the tradition of this, but none of us want people digging into our finances. And I totally agree with you, Cornelius, that it should have happened. I would never have voted for Donald Trump and did not, obviously, but never have voted for him anyway without him having some understanding of what his money looked like because you know if this guy gets elected. I mean, every day, I saw this morning, every day on the front pages of all of our papers, there are all these stories about him, about his son-in-law, about his financial dealings, his son in law now wants to be an advisor and he's trying to I mean it's just there's just is there's such again such a tangled web here um that we're reading about every day but he was elected and he won. And so again strategically if I'm him and I got in here without showing you my business, I ain't gonna show it to you now. Indeed. And finally, how can the African American community and its leadership prepare to thrive, if not prosper, under a Trump presidency? Now, that, Brother Cornelius, is the question. That is, we could, we could have spent a whole hour just talking about that one question uh, because there's so much there. Um, let, me, let me say this. Um, my approach is going to be the same as it has always been. In this piece I referenced earlier in this conversation that I just put out for Time magazine, uh, this farewell letter that I wrote to Obama about 
what I thought of his eight years as president. I, I, I said in the letter to the president, this is my farewell letter, that um, obviously it's no secret eight years later, certainly everybody in black America knows this, uh, it's no secret eight years later that I had some issues with this presidency, with his administration, not with him, but with his administration and the way he governed. There's no secret about that at this point. But in the piece, I tried to say, but here's how I have always seen, how I have always framed my critique of Barack Obama as president. In three words, respect, protect, correct. Respect, protect, correct. I have always respected Barack Obama as my leader. And I say in the piece, even though I did not vote for the guy that's coming behind you and don't have any don't have much regard for him, I still respect the office of the presidency. Number one. Number two, protect. We worked overtime, as you know, Cornelius, we worked overtime trying to protect Barack Obama from the white racist su- white racist supremacist attacks that he was under from day one. Uh now those same white racist supremacists have turned those attacks on not the president, but on the people. And so I now, and you now, and all of us now have to do our job to protect uh, those fellow citizens who are going to come under attack by this administration and by friends and supporters of this administration. We have got to be willing to draw a line in the sand. And as the old gospel says, or the old gospel hymn says, like a tree planted by the water, declare that we will not be moved. And so I'm not so much worried about protecting him. The Secret Service is going to handle that. Um, but I do have concerns about how we're going to protect the least among us, the vulnerable, the disenfranchised, the, 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 the least and the left out. Somebody has to be a, a, a big brother. Uh, to stop the bullying that we know is going to happen. So I, I, I kind of reframe that, that protect uh, piece of my argument. But the last piece is correct. And I wasn't afraid to do that with Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama ain't Jesus. He didn't walk on water. He's not perfect. Great presidents aren't born. Great presidents are made. They have to be pushed into their greatness. There is no Abraham Lincoln if Frederick Douglass ain't pushing him. There is no LBJ if MLK isn't pushing him. So unless you're going to be another garden variety politician, if you want to be a statesman, great presidents have to be pushed. History shows us that. You push them into their greatness. Abraham Lincoln started out on the wrong side of the slavery question. He was on the wrong side. But Douglas and others pushed him, and he finally got right. Now he's one of our great presidents for fighting the Civil War and saving the Union, but that Abraham Lincoln out of Illinois started out on the wrong side of the slavery question. So great presidents become that because they get pushed. I believe that about Barack Obama, and that was the reason why I was pushing him and holding him accountable and raising tough questions and raising critical issues, because I wanted him to be a great president, not just another garden-variety politician. Now, your question about Trump, the strategy doesn't change. I'm going to respect the office of the presidency. I am going to protect him when he's slimed by somebody, if that were to happen. But I'm going to protect my people and people writ large, humanity writ large, from being slimed by him. And thirdly, we must not be afraid to correct him when he's wrong. And there's going to be a whole lot of that, I suspect, given the way he's already started out. My grandmother said, you can't start out wrong and end up right. Uh, But Abraham Lincoln showed you can't. And so we have to end up. Uh, and be willing to to hold him accountable. And I wish I had something else to tell you, but this is going to be a bumpy ride. 
We want to thank Cornelius Wright for that insightful conversation with author, advocate, philanthropist, and late-night television talk show host, Tavis Smiley. You can uh, learn more about him and his radio and television broadcasts at TavisTalks.com. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, we want to hear it. Send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. You just heard Dancing in the Streets by Martha and the Vandellas. It peaked to number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart when it was released in 1964. While produced as an innocent dance single, the song took on a different meaning when riots in inner-city America led to many young black demonstrators citing the song as a civil rights anthem to social change, which also led to some radio stations taking the song off its playlist because certain black advocates such as H. Rap Brown began playing the song while organizing demonstrations. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. 
This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit WFHB's news website at wfhb.org forward slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. At the top of the hour, we shared that we would present some perspectives from last week's inauguration and series of women's marches across America. As some have speculated that Martha Reeves alluded to in the classic song we just played, women indeed turned out in force, not as a spectacle, but as a show of defiance against the stated and perceived policies of our new president. Joining us now is a participant in a march that was held in Indianapolis, bringing on contributor Doris Sims. Welcome to tonight's discussion. Doris, are you there? I'm here. All right. How are you? I'm fine. You know, Doris, I was sitting at home watching uh, all the screenshots, the television shots from around the world, and I could have sworn I caught a glimpse of you in a shot from Indianapolis. (laughs) Well, that would have been a miracle if you did see me, William, since there were thousands of women who came out and men along with children to the march that was held in Indianapolis. It was um, something to behold. So Doris, what um, what was your reasoning for going to this march? I think every everyone went for like different reasons in some ways and I'd love to hear what what was it that drove you to go? What were you walking for and, and demonstrating for? I think I I wanted to go because I'm a big component of women's rights. I'm a former board member as well as board president of Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. So I really believe in what Planned Parenthood does as an organization. And I think that that a lot of the rights that women have, and particularly what Planned Parenthood does as an organization, will be threatened uh, moving forward. So I wanted to be able to make it known about different women's rights, especially a woman's right to choose how she um, determines the use of her body is up to her and not up to our government. So reproductive rights and reproductive justice was high on your list. Yes. And health care. Yeah, healthcare in general, for sure. Yes. So, what what were some of the other issues uh, that that the women were marching for? What were some of the other signs that women were carrying? I think there were a, a variety of signs. Uh, pretty much, a lot of them dealt with women's rights in general and reproductive rights. Uh, but I think a lot of the signs felt that if the women there didn't hold up for their rights, not only for their rights but the rights of their children, be their male or female, with some of the other rights. Um, just rights for minorities in general were some of the other signs that I noticed. Did you did you go with friends or family, Doris? Did you go as a group, or did you just go by yourself? I actually went with a group um, of friends from here in Bloomington, although I know that Bloomington did take four bus loads, uh, but my friend and I, along with her sister, actually, decided that we would drive up separately. So, but I did see a lot of my friends and colleagues that I knew from Bloomington in um, among the people that were part of the march, which is exciting for as many people who were there to be able to connect with other people from Bloomington. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the speakers, because I know that there was a fairly long list of speakers. I don't know if there were any in particular that you thought were 
you know, really good that we should know about? Yes, there was a long list. Unfortunately, from my vantage point where I was in the crowd, um, I could not hear the speakers as well. And, and of course, the system kept coming in and out. But I do know that there were a lot of speak. There were speakers there who represented the NAACP um, that were represented different women's organizations, as well as um, speakers who represented the GBLT community. And so a lot of the speakers talked about women's rights. I think one speaker who I recall talked about how women got most of their rights within the 60s, the right to vote, um, the, and that we will not be turned back. We will not let the rights that we fought for um, in demonstrations back in that era uh, be taken away from us. No, from from what I've been hearing and actually what I know, nobody expected the massive turnout that actually occurred, uh, not just in the country, but but around the world. Mm, globally. Social yeah. yeah, social media played a huge part in mm-hmm. that. But were you surprised or, or or did you expect the the turnout that you saw in Indianapolis? I guess I wasn't surprised because I because of the amount of women that I knew here locally that were going. Um, so I expected a, a large turnout. I think what surprised me is the amount of women who brought their young children, be they teenagers or babies in strollers, mm-hmm. as well as the amount of support that a lot of women got from their male friends, their spouses, their significant others as well to come out, and uh, the amount of men that didn't mind wearing the little pink hats as well in support of women's rights. <laughs> William is uh, pointing to himself and saying, I'm not going to wear a pink hat, but I, he's, still, right. he's still supporting women's <laughs> rights. He just doesn't support. want to wear the pink hat. I, I know. Well, Doris, let me ask you something else. What, uh, in terms, like you've talked a lot about the fact that there were young people there, babies, um, men. In terms of the ethnic and racial sort of composition of the crowd in Indianapolis, like was it fairly diverse? Was it mostly um, mostly African American, mostly white? You know, what was your perspective on that? What did you see? I think it was pretty diverse um, a crowd from the from my little small area that I could see um, that they were there was it was a big diverse crowd. I think one of the things that uh, really inspired me that there were some young children, and I would say they were probably around about eight or ten, and there was a sculpture there around sculpture, and they had climbed up on it so that they could see um, a lot better. Of course, with me being only 5'2", there's only so much I could see over of my head. But to see them, and it was just... Um, it wasn't just little white girls, but little African-American girls as well who had climbed up on these sculptures who were holding up signs um, talking about their rights as well as women, as young girls. So that was inspiring as well. I love that. There was a picture going around the uh, on Facebook of this little... Um, a little boy, uh, maybe he was like two years old at the most, and he was wearing a sign like on him. His mom had put a sign around his neck and it said, I love taking naps, but I stay woke. <laughs> uh, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> and it was just the best sign. I, was just, I just loved it. It was so cute. <laughs> so Doris, considering the magnitude of this global protest, do you have any sense of what happens next? Are there more protests being planned do people uh, intend to take this back to the community? Is this the beginning of a, grass, a grassroots movement? 
Well, I think it's the beginning of a grassroots movement, because what I can remember one of the speakers saying is that we should not just stop with this action and um, that we should go back within our communities and that we should work with our different organizations, such as the NAACP, such as our local um, organizations like here locally, like our Democratic Women's Club, or with other organizations to make sure that we don't lose this momentum and to get out there and volunteer your time and make sure that what we were rallying for that day is not lost, but continue on. Yeah, I think that we have an opportunity here to bring a whole new generation of people into um, a grassroots movement. I mean, this, um, according to the news reports around the country and around the world, this ended up being the single largest um, set of civil rights marches in U.S. history. And so that's that's really phenomenal in and of itself to think about it. And I would hate to see us lose that momentum, right? It's, marches should never just be an, a means to an, um, a, an end in and of themselves. They should be a means to something else, the next step, bringing people together to organize uh, locally in communities at the state level. And I think that certainly there are some organizations that already exist that we could get involved with, but there's no stopping us from deciding that maybe we need, that maybe we want to create some new organizations too, right? That- I agree. There was tables, although it was hard to get close to them and know exactly where they were in the crowd, where you could sign up to be kept informed or be told about other type of maybe rallies or movements that's going on, or if you were interested in participating locally or nationally with an organization where you could sign up and they could probably send you email information. Mm -hmm. And we were looking for those at the end, but we could not really pinpoint where they were in the crowd. But I think that there is going to be continual movement on this issue um, or different issues, not just women's rights or minority rights, but just holding um, this, the present are the administration accountable for um, the actions that they do. Mm-hmm. And he is doing what he does best, which is, which is to just blow it off and, and try and dismiss it. But my, I, I'm kind of wondering, of all the women who participated in these protests, and I, I'm speaking nationally now, do you get the sense that these were Hillary supporters or Hillary and Bernie supporters, or were there even women out there who voted for Donald Trump? Well, you know, I can't speak. I know I've seen some of it nationally that there probably were some Trump supporters as well. I think that they were just all types of women, be they're not necessarily Hillary mm-hmm. or, or Bernie or, or Trump supporters, but women are looking at particularly what may be their rights taken away. So it may not be someone who has been active in politics or supported one candidate over another, but are now taking a stance and being involved, saying, you know, this is really starting to affect me one way or the other. Doris, did you notice... um uh, did you notice any Black Lives Matter signs in the crowd in Indianapolis? Because, I mean, people came, like we said at the early, when we started talking to you earlier this evening, that everyone kind of went for different reasons to, um, you know, to sort of promote different things. And I was wondering if you had seen any BLM signs in the crowd in Indianapolis. I can't recall any, but like I said, from my advantage point, like um, even with some of the women that I knew came locally, like I was on the west end of the stands and they were on the east end. Um, so I think depending on where your vantage point were, 
you were where you were located mm-hmm. that there were of course, everyone had signs, including myself, um, that there were different types of signs. What did your sign say, Doris? Um, <laughs> mine talked about women's rights, you know, don't take away um, our women's rights. No, I didn't want to take over the conversation. You had something to contribute, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, no, I just I didn't want to take over the conversation if you no, still had ahead, something you ahead, wanted to say. We don't have much time. Left. No, yeah, I was just thinking that, um, you know, there's just been a lot of activity happening around the country and around the world uh, this past weekend. You know, all a Friday, of course, was Inauguration Day, and there were... Um, counter protests to the inauguration happening all over the country. And here in Bloomington, um, the entire day on Friday was dedicated to inaugurate the revolution. And that uh, we had had some of the organizers of ITR on the show a couple of weeks ago, and they just did a phenomenal job, right? They spent the last four to six weeks fundraising and putting together essentially a one-day um, you know, social justice conference. Um, and there, most of the events took place at the Monroe County Public Library downtown, uh, at the Bus Crook Chumley, um, the Rhinos, uh, a few other places in the local area, the Waldron. And it was really amazing. Like at from 9.30 in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you had uh, six or seven or eight different sessions running at the same time on different aspects of activism and organizing uh, local grassroots, social justice, et cetera. You know, there were sessions on citizenship and belonging, you know, sessions on um, peace movements, sessions on how to get children and youth involved in activism from an early age. There were sessions run by the peace movement, run by one on feminism and feminist activism. And so it was really just an amazing opportunity for people. It was all free amazing opportunity for people of all ages and backgrounds to you know come and partake freely um, of all of these free seminars and workshops that were being run all day Um, and then when the workshops wrapped up at five o'clock there was um, a large gathering in march throughout the downtown area Uh, and then it ended at the bus kirk chumley and then there was a two-hour rally at the bus kirk chumley from six till eight Um, and the the Buskirk Chumley was completely full. It holds about 600 people. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely full, and there were people lined up on the sides against the walls because it was standing room only. And it was unbelievable. There were um, spoken word performances, songs, dances. There were speeches throughout the evening. And the whole thing was organized by you know, local folks, some who are attached to the university, some who are not, um, you know, Every, everybody from professors to students to local community members, activists, photographers, you know, just people who came together and said, you know what, November 8th can't be the, the day that things end. This has to be the beginning of local grassroots activism. We have to, like, not be thinking of this as the end. And I was... So Stanley Jaguna, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, coined the phrase, inaugurate the revolution. This is not the end. This is the beginning. It's the beginning of a beautiful, long period of organizing and resistance and struggle that has to happen in local communities like ours around the country. And I was so excited and humbled to be able to offer one of the workshops alongside two of my colleagues, Ellen Wu and Michelle Moyd. Uh, we offered one um, called you know, Citizenship and Belonging, looking at inclusion and exclusion 
um, in, in communities and how we can help to stand up for the most vulnerable um, people in our communities. Um, and I was also very privileged to be asked um, to be one of the speakers at the rally that evening. And it just blew me away when I looked at the diversity of people who showed up, um, not just to the workshops, but to that rally. Um, like Doris was saying, there were older people, there were younger people, there were people with babies in 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 strollers and and in their little snuggly packs. You know, uh, there were uh, grandparents and there were college students, there were professors and there were community people, uh, people of all different backgrounds and colors, transgender, gay, straight, white, brown, black, you name it. And it, it was really the most inspiring sort of evening. I've had William Morris, who's a local uh, lawyer in town, spoke. Um, I spoke. There were, uh, there were just an, a wide range of people from different backgrounds who contributed. Native, this Native American family uh, woman, her sister, and two kids, they danced for us. It was just phenomenal. And I was so encouraged that it was, we didn't leave this weekend feeling defeated. We left feeling like we now have the energy to get started because we've got a lot of work to do. So I, I'm excited that we had the women's marches and these um, anti-inauguration anti events happening all weekend long to kind of get us ready for what's to come. So Doris, uh, one more question before, before you go. Uh, you mentioned that you had a difficult time from where you were uh, situated hearing what the speakers were saying, but do you, uh, can you tell us who some of the speakers were who was in the lineup? I don't recall the names. I they I know they that they did do a Facebook page, which I was trying to download, but unfortunately everyone was trying to download at the same time, so um, I wasn't able to do that. I know that they had some state representatives that spoke. I know Dana Black spoke. She was a lot of people were really impressed with her speech. Okay. And so it was hard to, because it wasn't like they passed out anything with the speakers line up on it. They also had entertainment, uh, where they had a young a woman who wrote a song specifically for the event. Cool. Well, Doris, I know, I think we're slowly running out of time here, so we want to wrap it up. But thank you so much for being willing to call in and share some of your experiences from Saturday. So we just want to go ahead and publicly thank uh, Bring It On contributor Doris Sims for joining us to share her observations on the Indianapolis Women's March that was held this past Saturday. For WFHB, I'm Amrita Myers. I'm William Hosea. You are listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org.
You just heard Heat Wave, another classic by Martha and the Vandellas. It's now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Amrita Myers. Okay. Seeking nominations for the Outstanding Black Male Leader of Tomorrow 2017. Do you know of any black African-American males in the community who demonstrate outstanding leadership, scholarship, and or has been personally involved in making tangible, visible, and meaningful contributions to the Bloomington community? The Commission on the Status of Black Males is currently seeking nominations for the 2017 Outstanding Black Male Leader of Tomorrow Award. This award is presented annually to two black or African-American men, high school and adult. To be nominated for the High School Age Award, nominees must be currently living in Bloomington slash Monroe County enrolled in high school. Nominees for the Adult Male Award must be currently living in Bloomington and Monroe County and not older than 30 years of age. Nominations should include the name, address, telephone number, and email address of the nominee, in addition to a letter that describes the nominee's personal and leadership characteristics that make them deserving of the award. The nominator must also include his or her name, address, telephone number, and email address. Nominations are due January 31st, 2017. To download a nomination form, visit the City of Bloomington's Community and Family Resources Department located at 401 North Morton Street, Suite 260. Send completed nomination forms with a nomination letter by email to safeandcivil at bloomington.in.gov or by mail to City Hall, Community and Family Resources Department, P.O. Box 100, Bloomington 47402. The recipients of the award will be notified by Friday, February the 10th, 2017. And recipients will be honored at the 12th Annual Black History Month Gala on Saturday, February 25th, 2017 at the Hilton Garden Inn located at 245 North College Avenue. If you have an event or happening the African American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Again, our thanks to Doris Sims for her observations on Saturday's Indie Women's March and to Cornelius Wright for an insightful conversation with author, advocate, philanthropist, and late-night television talk show host Tavis Smiley on hopes and expectations of a Trump presidency. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nolan. Tonight's board engineer was Jim Thrasher and Floyd Hobson. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Amrita Myers. Be sure to tune in next Monday, January the 30th at 6 p.m. for a special conversation with Rafi Hassan from the Office of Safe and Civil Cities, who will give us an overview of Black History Month activities for the city of Bloomington. All that and more on another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.